the Trent, the Jet, they like agents on top of pavements, peppermint patty fragrance. Taking the credits when they spits and spritz a chip and dip a dip and dell I pin the tail. Death throw the penalty ID, throwing your identity, theft crime in the night, pick pop, keep the lock, stop, drop, roll the dice, double double dough, eat the rock road, pro shambo, tic tac toe, crossing a roll with the nice flow, with my industry, see me room roof living off, believe with my commodities, stop the eyes and cross the teeth, teeth. How do you do, Venters? On this episode, I sit down with entrepreneur Western Labar, the founding partner of Pair Strategies. As you will see, Weston is well-versed on many subjects. We talk about a variety of subjects, politics being one. And of course, I had to ask the self-proclaimed foodie about the local hotspots to eat. Well, enough of me. Let's hear from Weston. How do you do, Venters? This is Trent Clark. And today I'm sitting in the office of Weston Labar, overlooking the port of Long Beach. And um, Weston is the founding partner of Peer Strategies, Pair Strategies, I should say. And so, Weston, thank you for being on Vent with Trent the Gent today. Oh, thanks for having me, Trent. Good. So, I always like to go back to the beginning, so to speak. And so, what happened in your life that made you interested in political science? Uh, I think just growing up, I grew up in a very political family. Um, my the joke is that my first campaign was when I was two years old. I was the pumpkin on my aunt's county treasurer float in the Halloween uh, parade, and she's I think she's still county treasurer in the county I grew up in. So um, she's been around a long time. I had an aunt who was a county supervisor. I had an uncle who was uh, chief of police, and my mom was on the school board. So I was indoctrinated from a young age of I never knew anything other than politics as a kid. And so. Did that make you want to study political science in, yeah. in, in college? Yeah, I mean, it was something that I was very interested in. I think uh, it's something that now young people are interested in, but I don't think I can say the same thing for uh, kids when I was growing up. Uh, most folks didn't want to know about politics, but in the age of social media, it's hard not to. Uh, sometimes now we want to know less, but we can't help ourselves but to know more than we, we would like at times. Um, ironically, I think growing up, I was very interested. I, I participated in things like model government, uh, model UN, uh, you know, um, class council, student council, those types of things. Uh, it wasn't until I really got into the adult world consulting in politics that I grew to start to dislike it. Um, I think once you get involved in it, there's just sides of things that you don't like to see. Uh, and uh, as much as I enjoy the sausage making that goes on and, and, and you know, finding good policies and, and helping folks weigh in um, on, on how to lead the country in a different way, uh, you still see things behind the scenes, the, the politics of politics, if you will, that <laughs> sometimes it's just uh, it's a little bit underwhelming. Yeah, I was once told that everything's political and so even politics are, <laughs> exactly. are, are political. Are there any things, those things that you don't like or any specifics that you could share? Uh, I think generally, uh, I think I can. I, I would say that um, there's times when you know people would like to make a decision one way or the other, but 
the politics of it get in the way. So whether that's a, a person in, in Congress or in the state legislature that, you know, at the end of the day, they may not love what it is, but they, they hold their nose and they vote with the party line, or they've at least negotiated out some of the worst parts of a piece of legislation that they like, so they hold their nose and vote for something that they still don't really like because it's, it's part of the diplomatic process. Um, when you see that for, for your, you know, everyday uh, average individual who doesn't deal with the situations like that, uh, you take a look at it and you say, why would you vote for something if you didn't agree with it? And you realize that sometimes you had to vote because you agreed with parts of it, and although you disagreed with parts, it's something that was important. Uh, and I think more and more as media and social media play a part in it, um, we do get a lot of populism. And there are times where I, I always say, I don't know how popular I would be as a city councilman or, or something like that, because there's things that our elected leaders know that we just aren't privy to. And that's really their job is to know a lot of these things. And that information doesn't always come out in the vote because if you get uh, a bunch of angry residents that show up on an issue, uh, you know, a lot of times the elected officials going to vote with their heart, we'll say, which is the folks that put them in office as opposed to vote with their head, which is them knowing uh, what might be the best decision long term. Um, so there's there's that element with term limits in California, a little bit of short-sightedness, and you can't blame folks, but I'm, I'm a big proponent of you shouldn't be trying to get elected for office as a, as a career, you should be doing it as a passion, and um, far too many people, it's a career, so sometimes you get bad decisions. Is there any way to get those term limits changed? So. Now, maybe people will enter um, politics as a passion as opposed to, to a career? You know, it's funny because term limits were put in place to keep people going through, get fresh ideas. I would argue that we already had term limits. If you don't like what somebody's doing, you vote for somebody else. And, and um, you know, that couldn't have been more evident than the mid-year elections in 2010 when dozens of long-term congressional members were ousted from office. Um, but the whole point of term limits in theory makes sense, right? This person's got eight years, you have them get in there, you have them do a good job, and then you find somebody else. But the problem is, is if you want to be a career politician, now what am I doing? I'm not paying attention to the people I was elected to represent. I'm looking at the next group of people that I want to elect me to represent them. And so that's where there's that trickle down of, uh, you know, musical chairs, if you will, going from one office to the next. Um, and it's just the way that the system has been set up and, and you're, you're looking at how you can benefit a group of folks that maybe is not the group of folks you're really representing at, at any given time. And, and the other problem is, is no sooner do you really get in office and start to build some relationships, then your terms are up. So uh, you lose institutional knowledge. And so, I, I mean, I personally think it would be a great idea to revisit them. And California has done that by augmenting from uh, having a certain amount of time in both uh, the Assembly and the Senate to you just have a blanket number of years and you can serve in either house as long as, as you want, which I think is a step in the right direction. But uh, I personally am not a fan of term limits and I would welcome any change to that law, except uh, I don't, it's one of those bad things that I don't think is gonna get undone anytime soon. Yeah, it always takes a lot to 
for, for that type of change mm -hmm. at least. Uh, let's talk about political correctness, so to speak. W where do you feel our country is headed in relation to political correctness? Yeah, you know, it's interesting with the with our current president, he's about as politically incorrect as you could ask for, right? And and I think for the people that support him, that's what they like about him. I think it's a reaction against the 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 self-censorship we've put on ourselves. Um, but that being said, you know, it, it's interesting. You, you sit around with a group of your friends uh, and you would say things to groups of your friends that you would never say in, in, in the open public, right? And it's funny because it's one thing if, if you've got somebody who is or an elected leader or a corporate spokesperson, I mean, they need to be able to be politically correct as they speak. But nowadays, uh, people get beat up because they put the wrong thing on their Twitter account or uh, walking down the street, you make the wrong comment to, to you know, your buddy as you're walking down the street. And, you know, I don't think that the level of PC that we're at is necessarily good. We've got, it's almost like the, uh, I like to compare it a little bit to the um, participation trophy, right? So we want everybody to be happy all the time. And there's a lot of times where you may say something and not realize that I find it offensive uh, unless I tell you that. But nowadays it feels like anything anybody says is going to offend somebody. And so you either take the, the Donald Trump route of offend everybody all the time and don't, don't care or you try to take this super conservative route of don't ever say anything that could ever be construed as controversial whatsoever. And I don't think that helps us either. So a nice balance, getting back to just uh, common sense diplomacy would probably be a good idea. But uh, you know, just because someone says something doesn't make them uh, you know, prejudice against one group or another. A lot of times in, in this country, I mean, I grew up in Pennsylvania in the mountains. So there's things that I heard growing up that if anybody now living in Long Beach would hear, they would think, oh my goodness, where are these people from? But that's just it. They, they saw a whole bunch of people that looked exactly like themselves their entire lives. And so, um, you know, what, what an 80-year-old from Pennsylvania says is much different than what you might get from a millennial from Los Angeles County. And so it's just it's taking all those things in context. I think we've got some big generational gaps and sometimes... It's, it's as important to understand what was PC 40 years ago. The, the whole Woodrow Wilson, the Princeton kids trying to get his names off all the buildings because of what he did in 1919. It's like, well, that was 1919. George Washington owned slaves. That's not politically correct today either, but in 1776, it was completely different ballgame. So I think we've got to stop trying to take common day and, and apply it to yesteryear. Um, and, and we all have to do our best to be progressive and, and see be forth, forward thinking and say, you know, what am I doing? What, carry, your, carry your own, you know, uh, your own weight in this whole process and not worry so much about what somebody else is doing. If you don't like what they have to say, just don't associate with them. Yes. You mentioned Trump and his social media prowess, <laughs> so to speak. You also help your clients with their social media marketing campaigns. Mm -hmm. If you were in charge of Trump's, how would you advise him? <laughs> uh, wow, that's a, that's a loaded question. Hmm. Um, you know, what I think is interesting, like I said, he, his campaign was very effective 
with the group of people he was going after. And actually, his message points were on par wherever he went. He talked about what was upsetting people wherever he went. So when he went to when he went to Pennsylvania, he was talking about the coal jobs people lost and the steel jobs people lost and gun rights. And But when he go to Minnesota, he's talking about refugees and losing your, your work to these folks. Uh, he, as, as, as you know, discombobulated as his whole campaign seemed, it was pretty well thought out. I would now, as president, take his phone away from him if I was advising him. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate to tweet at uh, diplomats from other countries or from our country. I mean, now it's the time that he needs to act presidential, but uh, he, he exploited a whole group of people because that's what they wanted to see. They wanted to see this brash, outspoken individual who was not part of the establishment and was going to tell him what he thought. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get what you ask for. And unfortunately, he has not grown up uh, from the candidate to the, uh, to the elected official, the leader. And um, I don't, you know, I'm just glad I wasn't in any of the rooms when they were advising him because I probably would have lost my mind. <laughs> so do you think that they have advised him to get rid of the phone? Or I hope that anybody that talks to him asks him to delete his Twitter account, but um, it doesn't seem like he's very good at taking advice from people at times, uh, especially if it's, you know, it's interesting because if it's on a poli if it's on policy issues or it's on some, uh, you know, things that are very, very uh, focused in black and white. He, I mean, he he listened to the president. I don't know how far he's going to take it, but former President Obama on on different things. He seems very open to listen on that level to advice. But when it comes to behavior, or when it comes to anything that he finds to be um, insulting to his his person. He's not a very uh, easygoing uh, gentleman when it comes to that. So um, I, I hope people are advising him, but it sounds to me like anybody who disagrees with him is not going to have a job very often. So you know, it all depends on how strong the people around him want to remain. So as he just tweets whatever he feels, and speaking of that political correctness of America and where we're headed, do you feel most Americans will find that as the new norm? Just to, I mean, yeah. I, actually, I think um, they already do tweet what they feel, you know, hiding behind the keyboard. So do you think as Americans, we're just going to have all this vitriol out there? Here's, here's what I think is different in this situation. It's one thing if you have a celebrity that's doing it or a random person that just that's how they blow off their steam but this guy is the face of our nation and I think that out of everything you know whether whether you agree or disagree with his policies is, is beyond me um, that that is not what's important I think every president has had a large group of people that agree with their policies and a large group of people that disagree with their policies so uh, for me if you put that aside his 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 bedside manner leaves something uh, to be desired and when I say that he's he's there essentially representing all Americans on an international stage and I personally would never want to be viewed in the way that he's viewed right now on an international stage and so you know when you travel abroad um, that whole stereotype of 
you know, ignorant Americans or, you know, Americans are brash. Well, look what we've, we've, we've put the poster child for everything that uh, you're going to hear from a Parisian underneath the Eiffel Tower uh, when you're visiting France. And, and to me, that's the most concerning thing. Whether, whether you agree with his policies or not, uh, you know, as, as to the people on an individual level, but for me, I think that uh, we deserve a, a better persona from the president at this point in time. And I think he's, ca I think he's capable of it because we've seen it at different times. When he gave his inauguration speech, I thought he was under control. I thought that although he didn't paint the best picture of the country, I thought that he showed the demeanor of somebody that could be a forthright leader and a good good face. Um, but he, he just sometimes he just goes off the rails, and to me, that's the biggest concern: is how do we how do we rein him in and, and make him a face of the country where you may disagree with him, but you're not embarrassed by him. Yeah. You've been branded as a strategic executive. So what is that exactly, and how did you become an expert in, in, in the field? So um, before I moved out here, I, I had the pleasure of do it, being a government affairs director in the network at the Pennsylvania Association of Realtors. And so um, I got the chance to do political campaigns, to help with policy making, to do you know, the, the quote unquote lobbying efforts, um, working with communities on grassroots issues. And because of the realtors, it was almost always focused on home ownership and, and the cost of housing and how to get people uh, into homes. And so um, I took a lot of what I learned from that job when I started Pair Strategies out here in 2012, um, understanding how, the, how, to, how to play the game a little bit, how the, the decisions you make impact the, the broader audience. Um, and so we started out as a public affairs firm working with whomever needed help. Uh, we started with a lot of chambers of commerce in that trade association realm. But how do we navigate those, those waters um, legislatively? And we've really evolved as a firm. Um, and a lot of it's that experience I had. Uh, we noticed we were doing a lot of public policy work for trade associations. And I also noticed that a lot of trade associations um, that didn't have a big budget, didn't have a full-time executive, didn't have a full-time staff, a lot of times had one of one of two things. Uh, they either had somebody who was their hired executive director that basically just did the administrative stuff, you know, made sure that the, the e-blasts went out, uh, made sure that the, the invoices went out, made sure that people paid their bills. Um, or, or they had, um, and, and they had their, their members do the advocacy work or, or, or be the face of the group. Um, or they would have that administrative person and then they would hire somebody like like a lobbyist or somebody else that understood the industry uh, to represent them, an attorney, etc. And I felt like there was a huge opportunity to come in and do all of that in one shop. And so a large portfolio of our business is, is coming in with associations um, and, and being um, that strategic executive at the top level with the 30,000 foot, this is what we need to do this is how we can give a, a better product to the membership so there's a return on their investment. Um, here are the different things that we need long-term strategy. But then also, what are the things that you have to do? You have to do the little things well if you want the long-term goal to succeed. And so we're able to do both those day-to-day -day activities uh, and, and run the business of the association through our business as well as be that face, that voice, and that long-term 
um, strategic guidance and and that's really uh, something that we do that I don't see anybody else do in this space um, and it's something that we're pretty proud of because at the end of the day you know, we have corporate clients as well and, and it's 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 fun working with them to help them reach their larger strategic goals but when you're at the top level working with, with an association that's a network of people coming together for a common cause and you can see the impacts on how it helps them with their business or it, or it helps them with their issue um, day in and day out and then at the same time helping raise the voice of that group of people uh, to a different level so they are relevant and viable in today's society it's a pretty cool experience so the the cost of housing is probably loaded too right <laughs> yes how you know how, how do you begin and I'm probably biased because I live in Los Angeles and I know that the housing costs are outrageous here so but I'm thinking it's all relative throughout the country so how how do you address that and to make it feasible for everyone to, to own a home yeah so it's interesting um, when all of the minimum wage discussion was happening last year I was on record as saying I didn't think we had a wage issue we had a cost of living issue and housing is a supply and demand um, issue most much like most commodities it's just people forget that a house is no different than a, a TV a car an electronic the more rare it is the more money it's gonna cost um, and if and if you can produce more you're going to have more um, we have this this anomaly here in California that the nimbyism that I don't think you see as much in other places and I think that that contributes a lot to it uh, we see that the cost of housing keeps going up uh, we see that that there's very little if any real housing stock on the market it, yet um, time after time and, and we see this a lot in coastal cities right people have lived there for a long time uh, they don't mind somebody buying the house next to them that's there but don't build another house down the street because we've already got too much traffic and we've already got too much this and we've already got too much that and really we, we need to make it easier to build in this economy uh, one it provides jobs construction jobs are still one of the few really well-paying blue-collar jobs and, and um, as long as you don't submit to a no-growth mentality those jobs are always in existence in one way shape or form uh, so that's that's one of the great things about um, about construction jobs and, and housing it's interesting you know we we have t over 10 million people in Los Angeles County yet Coming from the East Coast, we have very few downtowns that look like real cities. We have, we have a whole lot of main streets that look much like the main street where I grew up uh, in a county of 60,000 people now. So, you know, the densification in our urban cores needs to happen. Uh, to have height limits on condominium and apartment uh, projects in, in places like downtown Long Beach or downtown Los Angeles or Santa Monica or any of those to me is just ridiculous I think that you need to allow for these to come in you need to do the bonus the, the density bonuses that are available for people to put in more affordable units people um, depending on what side of the argument are but you hear it more and more that people resist gentrification yet 
we we don't try to pass through projects that may let a developer add another story to their building if they can add a number of low, very low income housing units because uh, humans by nature right we, we we feel bad we feel empathy for folks but we don't want to have to feel empathy too close to home and in this case it's very literal um, and I, we've done work with lots of developers where uh, the land is zoned a certain way they don't have very much housing stock there it could be a high cost of living area and everybody in that neighborhood who's 100% willing to talk about how we need to increase the minimum wage or we need to make things more affordable is out there protesting that project coming in and so uh, we need to do a better job if, 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 if we are as progressive as we say we are in Los Angeles County and we really want to help folks uh, and we want to do things like solve homelessness and and get to a point where people can actually earn a living wage and live on it then we need to make things um, a little bit more affordable and so we're at a precipice we have to we have to decide at this point in time do we want to be a a affluent white-collar community that uh, only the very elite can live in like uh, like a San Francisco like a Manhattan uh, or do we want that middle-class um, backbone of the economy that we we here in Los Angeles County really grew up on uh, with manufacturing, with, with logistics, with these types of opportunities, more and more it's, it's just hypocritical. And I think that's, that's to me what's so outstanding is we don't want to create these jobs because these, these projects are not what we want to look at on our way to and from work. And we don't want to create housing for the people that may be working there, but we think that there should be a solution for these people that don't have a job that can help them afford to live in a place that doesn't exist at this point either. So um, I think some introspectiveness from a few folks. Uh, maybe maybe you don't show up and uh, protest, protest that next warehousing project that's gonna go in or protest that next housing development going in down the street because uh, I'm gonna guess that some pretty great people either wanna work there or live there and that's a great opportunity for us but we're gonna, we're, we're headed very quickly into an economy where only the very rich and the very poor will be able to live here and everybody else will have to leave. And that seems counterproductive to what, what we all know as being a progressive. Yeah. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, it's, you know, affordable. What's, what's deemed affordable at, at this point? It's, right? Yeah, and, and that's, um, it all depends where you are, right? So. If I live in Nebraska and I make $40,000 a year, I'm probably doing pretty well for myself and, and I can probably afford uh, a nice house and a, and a reasonable car. And um, you know, there, there's certain things that go beyond borders, right? So college education and, and things like that, student loans, they don't care where you are after you leave college. But um, the brick and mortar things is, is all relative to the local economy. That's, that's why to me it's funny even at the state level, when we talk about uh, the, a living wage was interesting to me and, and affordability because $15 an hour in, in Los Angeles uh, doesn't get you very far, but $15 an hour in Kern County, you're, you're doing pretty well for yourself. So we don't index this stuff to be relative to what the actual cost is anywhere. And, and it gets even funnier when you do it at the federal level because um, you can't tell me that Des Moines, Iowa has anywhere near the same cost of living index is New York City, 
or San Francisco or Los Angeles. And so when, when rents are now averaging uh, almost $3,000 for a, uh, a two bedroom in Long Beach, California, uh, that, that's an issue uh, unless we're providing people with the opportunities to make that kind of money. So to just, to just throw money and say that now this is gonna be a living wage, it's, it's, it's all relative because inflation kicks in and unless you're making things more affordable from the ground up, and providing opportunities and, and increasing um, educational opportunities and other things and providing the places for people to go. I have a college degree, but there's no jobs for me. Where, where do I go? Or there's other places where there's no college degrees, but there's plenty of jobs. So now they got to import folks. Um, you know, you, you would think in 2017, you'd be able to do a little bit better job of planning. Uh, these are the types of, of uh, educational programs we need and these for the types of jobs that we want to have and this is the type of housing we're gonna have to have if we want to be able to attract folks to stay here but we just think in silos and it doesn't make any sense to me your your niche is working with PACs right political we do some action work committees. with them some work wouldn't be your niche would you? I don't know if we, I don't know if we have a niche per se uh, but we do do some work with PACs uh -huh. um, for the listeners, obviously, you work with those organizations to raise money to either affect or influence an election or a campaign or a le legislation. Mm -hmm. um, did you work with any in this last election? Uh, not on the federal level. Uh, so, so most of the stuff we do is, is local. Um, but it's not to say I haven't done, when I was with the realtors, I worked on campaigns of, of all sizes through, uh, through their political action committee. Um, but we tend to do it mostly with, with existing clients that we have. So uh, political action committees are very special interest uh, driven. So uh, as I'm sure the listeners know, if, if it's a whole bunch of people that like business, they're going to raise money like a chamber of commerce and go one way. If it's a whole bunch of people that don't like growth, they're going to raise money and do things their way. Um, there's There's... A million different personas a pack could take on. Uh, we try to work with our existing clients because if we're out there making policy with them, we think it's very important to have elected leaders that share in those values. Um, as far as getting involved in political action committees outside of where there's an existing organization that, that's underneath where you can see really what their mission stands for, uh, we have to we have to be very much in line on. Uh, from from our stance on what they're trying to accomplish because um, There's plenty of people out there that if there's a check coming in They'll they'll take any job, but here at our firm. We like to make sure that they're things that we agree with um, You know for instance, I'm <clears throat> I'm I'm the furthest thing from a no-growth person when I call myself a progressive I mean it both in the social stance, but I like to see cranes. I like things being built I think that that shows there's progress going on so I would never take on a, a project where I was trying to stop progress from happening. And so for me, um, we, we can have much more of a, a, an understanding of the mission at a local level than you do at a, at a, at a federal level or even a state level. And so um, would we get involved in a project like that? Maybe, but it would depend on what the project is. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the executive orders that Trump 
<laughs> Trump's have has has ordered. So let's start with the the Johnson Amendment when um, banning of the nonprofit who ordinarily do not pay taxes or exempt from paying taxes. What's your feeling on on that ban and how how would that affect? So I I think that the Johnson Amendment was a good thing. Uh, personally, I I don't think that. So when I give money to a nonprofit, a charitable nonprofit, so there's three different types of not for profits. You've You've got a 501c3, which is your charitable. That's a that's a that's a house of worship. That's a soup kitchen. That's a that's a you know your your Salvation Armies of the world. You've got a 501c4, which is a community group, which that's often used uh, from in the political sense. You just can't use certain keywords like vote or elect, but you can use it for community education. And then you have a 501c6, which is a trade association. So your chambers of commerce and, and a lot of our clients. Um, I don't have a problem with a C4 or a C6 because they already can do that and I think that they're not tax deductible money that's going to them. I have a problem if I really don't think it's um, right for a person who gives to a charitable organization uh, and I know this is really geared at houses of worship at this point in time mm -hmm. but I think that that education happens already. However, I don't think that a pastor of a church for instance can speak definitively for their entire congregation whereas if I'm if I'm part of a chamber of commerce do I agree with everything that they do maybe not but I always can say I don't want to renew my dues and I can leave and I guess you could leave a, a church as a parishioner but the, the real reason you go there is because of what the faith says to you not what the pre what the the, the leader of the church has for their own political beliefs and Depending on where you are uh, or what religion you are, uh, you could have very different um, political beliefs than the church that you're part of. And I, I really think it goes to the whole separation of church and state, which we don't get enough of in this country. But I think that a real defined separation of those two entities uh, is important and needs to happen. When did, because I, I think I remember as a kid, there was that line of, of separation where, where 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 do we lose that um well i think there's always been an underlying amount of of co-mingling between the two i just don't think it was so blatant uh i would say that for me when when i really saw a difference was during um george w bush's campaign so reagan really started with the whole um change of the Republican Party to being more conservative in, in their values. And so the, the values of the, of the church, of the Christian religion, really started to play more and more of a role in, um, in the social policies, really, of the Republican Party. And I think that uh, George W. Bush, when he ran, really tapped into the evangelical audience. And so... Uh, from a political standpoint, that's really when I saw it get involved in the political standpoint. But when it comes to policymaking, it's always been a part of it. If you look back to Dr. Martin Luther King, you look back to, to Malcolm X, I mean, those are religious leaders, but they had people following for their cause, fighting against the oppression that they, they had suffered. Um, I think there's always been a part of religion in policy making, but I don't think that it's necessarily needed to cross over into the campaigns. Um, and it's one thing for your 
your religious leader to say from the from the dais, hey, you know what, uh, I'm going to vote for so and so. I don't have a problem with people sharing their religion, but I don't think that monies that come in the church uh, should be able to be used for political purposes. Dealing with a lot of trade associations, you have Trump's first executive order was to withdraw the U.S. from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Mm -hmm. um, also, the North American Free Trade Association Agreement. Um, so, how how is that going to affect some of your clients and the way that you're you have to deal with them? Remains to be seen how it affects uh, trade in general. I think that's the biggest concern is just the uncertainty around the whole issue of, of trade and, and globalization. Uh, to me, the, the most disappointing thing throughout the entire campaign was the fact that neither side decided to stand up and say, trade's a good thing. Um, to me, the whole argument against something like TPP or NAFTA, uh, it beckons to think we're going to return to an economy where everybody is smelting their own steel and we're mining coal and we're, we're, we're making everything here in the United States. But the fact of the matter is that there's very few, manuf very few companies that we would consider to be manufacturers in the same sense that we did 30 years ago. You take a company like Apple. Apple doesn't make anything. They buy everything and they assemble it. However, they consider Apple still as a manufacturer of the iPhone, or they're really just a, a logistics company because they're figuring out who has the screens that they want, who has the microprocessors that they want, who has the little widgets and doodads that are gonna go into your favorite electronic device, and they import them to some place that has a beneficial trade relationship with the United States, or if they're sending it someplace else with, with that other country and then they bring it here. I think that the opportunities missed with free trade agreements is if we use the proper tax incentives, we could promote the we could promote um, a lot of really good logistics jobs here. Make make the America the place where you have these final assemblance hubs. I think the biggest issue is people think that they lost their job because it was sent overseas. And that may have been true in the early 90s, but most of those jobs have come back. They've cut, or most of those products are made here now, but the jobs haven't come back. Why? Automation. So we aren't replacing people with people someplace else as much anymore as we're replacing people with robots. And there's a real opportunity, at least right now with current technology, to create a lot of jobs in what I get, what I do, which is logistics, uh, moving things from point A to point B and in construction of these different facilities and, and the upgrading of these facilities. However, uh, to think that people are gonna stand in an assembly line and I'm gonna put this widget together and pass it to you and you're gonna add your doodad on top of it, that just doesn't happen anymore and that's not going to happen. Um, and Because who would do it? it, it the millennials aren't gonna do that. We're, we're creating, we're, we're, we're a creative society at this point in time when you talk about the millennials. Um, and, and it's not that there shouldn't be those middle-class blue-collar jobs available, but as you pointed out, many folks, that's not what they're, they're looking for. They have no problem designing the widget, but they don't want to physically put it together. And that's just a difference from, from previous generations. Um, you know, the United States is the number two manufacturer in the world. People probably don't realize that. 
Uh, by 2025, we're set to become the number one manufacturer in the world ahead of China again, but we'll do it with much less manpower. And so um, as opposed to creating policies that take us back to a way of doing something, we should be creating policies that allow us to um, embrace the next, the next generation of whatever it, the economy is going to do. And it's like a business. If, if you run a business, like it was run 20 years ago, because that's the way you run it and that's the way you're comfortable doing it, you're probably gonna lose some market share. You may not be in business, depending on what you do, ask Kodak. Um, however, if you wanna be cutting edge and you wanna adapt and you wanna look at how you can be part of a leader as, as that progress and change takes place, you, you can be on the forefront of it. And that's, I think, the, the concern I have with a lot of the trade policies is we may slow some things down, but is it a long-term issue that we're creating for ourselves? Because now we're not going to be a leader in globalization. We can't control how those conversations go. And we're letting other people um, decide decide these agreements for us, essentially, because we're not going to be a part of it. And, and unless we become a completely self-sustaining um, economy where we don't do any importing or exporting, which isn't going to happen. Uh, we need to operate as part of the global cog, and that's that's something that we're seeing a, a pull away from. Um, and in this day and age, with the internet and everything else, why you would not want to be the the leading voice in the globalization efforts? I have no idea. I have a uh, a friend, and as you may know, I'm in the the custom clothing business. And he's a, a shirt maker. And he feels strongly that there should be some type of something done differently because there's no way that we can compete because his shirts are made right here in, mm -hmm. in the USA, um, how he can compete with the prices that people are getting from overseas. Um, do you see that that would be a legitimate gripe that something needs to, to change so, there to make us competitively um, in that custom clothing business at least? So everything has its positives and its negatives, right? And so that's the, that's the beauty of policy making is there's winners and losers every single time. And more and more, it just depends on whose voice is the loudest and, and who really wants to put the pressure on. But I mean, you look at the maiden, I, I'm looking at just the economy right now. I don't know as a shirt maker where his buttons come from. I don't know where he buys his fabric. I don't know a lot of these things. I know that he makes it here mm -hmm. and it's probably more uh, expensive unless you have an automated facility like a, a large manufacturer may have. Um, but that being said, and it, finding the right tools to to have the finished product may be more and more difficult without globalization because that, that button that he might have been able to get thousand, 100,000 buttons for, for you know fractions of a penny on the dollar, now we're making them here. And so they're more expensive to make. And um, that drives up the cost to make the shirt as well. It, it's funny, there was a, a story on NPR about a, a barrel making company that make the big blue barrels you know that you capture rain with or um, they're in the industrial barrels, um, and they're in Erie, Pennsylvania. And, and these folks are big time Trump supporters because they lost their jobs uh, overseas and things like that back in the '90s. Uh, now they're they're growing again and they're back they're back up. But 
to me, when I, I heard it, I heard a whole lot of people that didn't understand exactly what they were opposed to because uh, the, the same company that was um, wanted, wanted manufacturing and wanted this thing, they, they too were by and large a logistics company and they imported a lot of their uh, parts from the Pacific Rim and, the, and the, the chief financial officer of the company said, well, the one concern we have is that we get all these parts pretty cheap in the Pacific Rim and we're not sure how that's going to affect our, our margins and what we're going to have to charge for these, but we're really excited that we're making them in America and that it's, it's, there's a Buy America push. I'm like, well, but you're assembling them here. There, you may make certain components of it, but you're buying from somebody someplace else that does it cheaper. Uh, then they talked about their workforce and they said, well, you know, most of their entry-level workforce is immigrants that come here because they, they, they can't get other people to, to take these positions. And, that, and I'm, so I'm saying, okay, so you're, you're happy about um, a certain executive order that came out. However, you're concerned about how it may impact the folks that work for you. So it, it, it can't be a zero-sum game. And I think that's the big thing is we don't have the network or the infrastructure to support everything being made in America. Every big American company and every small American company, unless they're a complete artist and like a wood maker that's putting this desk that we're sitting at together or that chair together, probably got a lot of their parts at a low cost from some other country. And that's done through globalization and through trade. And so, um, those are some of the things that need to be taken into consideration and that I don't think people really took into consideration. Yeah. Let's um, switch gears a, a little bit. And I believe I read that you were a self-described foodie. Is that, are you a I foodie? Am. <laughs> I am. So what are some of the local eateries that, uh, that we may not know about that, that you like to frequent? So I, I will say any of the Michael Dean restaurants are absolutely outstanding, but uh, Michael's on Naples mm -hmm. is great. Uh, a lot of people don't realize uh, Michael's on Naples almost always, almost every year by Zagat is a 99 point rated Zagat restaurant. And I think there's at one, uh, a couple years ago, there were only three in all of Manhattan. So to have one here in your backyard, it's pretty special. He has Kianina, which is uh, rated one of the top 10 steakhouses in the country. Um, and he's got Michael's Pizzeria, which was rated the number one pizzeria by Zagat in the country. So having all that in Long Beach is great. Um, but my favorite of his is actually Working Class Kitchen. Uh, it's at um, Anaheim and, and Redondo, essentially. Uh, great sandwiches. But they also have the, uh, they, they have the, um, the butcher shop that when you watch the Food Network and they're like, you can just go to your local butcher and, and they'll give you an ounce of foie gras and this. Well, I don't know about you, but Vons does not have that stuff. So um, they have just really, really interesting homemade sausages and, and different types of, of products, you know, rabbit and quail and things that if you really want to venture out um, on your own into some, some kind of culinary challenges, uh, they, they have probably what you would need to do it there. Um, the best macaroni and cheese in the world, I'm convinced, is, is uh, right here at the attic on Broadway and Redondo. I've been hearing a lot about the attic. Yes, the outstanding food. Um, uh, and then there's a local long-term restaurant that, called La Opera right here on Pine Avenue that uh, I go to almost every Friday night, I would say. It's outstanding homemade Italian food um, with a great atmosphere. And they have a guy walking around singing opera. You give him a couple bucks and he'll sing live opera at your table. So it's a pretty cool experience. But uh, Long Beach is, has no shortage of really great restaurants. 
um, the best restaurant anybody has ever been to. They, you need to go to the playground. <laughs> ever? You need to go to the playground in Santa Ana. You need to go for their Sunday supper. It's groups of four or more, but they do it, uh, you know, family style. And you don't, their menu changes every single day, but you don't know what you're getting until you get there on that Sunday. So you book it for, for four or more people. You're going to get some of their, uh, some of their, you know, um, staple dishes like their fried chicken and their maple glazed pork chop, which are out of this world, but you're going to get stuff there and have no idea what you're getting and it's a fun experience uh and the food is outstanding i got a vegetarian to eat beef cheeks there so um, uh, if if you're looking for something fun to do with with a group of friends or if somebody's coming to visit you book a sunday supper uh it's a really cool activity wish i would have knew about that last night so so sunday supper um the fagua you, you you mentioned in until was that last year when it became legal again? Well, there was a pseudo ban. Oh, so you, was... you couldn't sell it, but there was a couple restaurants that, quote unquote, gave it away with certain dishes. But I'm sure that dish was much more expensive to um, cover the cost. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'll say as a, as a foodie, I'm glad it's back. All right, good. Uh, I've never tried it, so I uh, I would have to partake. It's amazing. What are some ideas, some interesting ideas, some, some crazy ideas that, that you have that's actually worth pursuing? Crazy ideas I have. Well, I've given up on being a professional athlete now that I'm in my 30s. I think that my, my prime is behind me. Um, you know, the, the big passion I have right now, I, I have um, other, I'm an entrepreneur, I have other ventures, but I'm, I'm working uh, I work in the supply chain. I see how inefficient things don't work all the time. And for a very, um, for, for a very long time, I was helping other people tell them what, whether I thought their products were good or bad uh, and, and helping them with focus groups, um, and helping them tweak different things. And most, mostly just doing that because I wanted to see improvement in the system. I wanted to make sure that truckers were getting getting in and out of the port faster. I wanted to make sure that uh, consumers were were getting whatever gadget they wanted on the shelf. And so, uh, you know, I, uh, late last year, I should say middle of last year, I started a, a software and technology company, and, and we're starting to develop and roll out some of those products. And I'm very excited about where that may go. Um, you know, it's. For me, I'm a results-oriented person, and so as much as we live in, in the theory of things, when you can watch something actually be put into action and see tangible results come out of it, um, that, that to me is, is the ultimate experience because you don't have to wonder whether it's doing good or not. Uh, you can see what's going on and, and how it's improving or, or not, but hopefully how it's improving. Um, the lives of the people around you that are using it. So uh, I, hopefully I'll be doing more of that um, throughout my life and come up with some pretty cool projects that uh, you'll all hear about. Look forward to that. Let's do um, something new. <laughs> First time doing this. Obviously the, the show is called Vent with Trent the Gent. Um, so this new segment is going to be Invent with Trent the Gent. So with that said, what's the best invention ever 
and what invention that you could not live without? Ooh. Well, I think, you know, being the average cusp of millennial uh, adult that I am, I couldn't live without a smartphone these days. It's funny, I watch TV and I'm on my smartphone. And then I'll realize, you know, I'm watching a basketball game and I'm like, well, how'd, the, how'd they get up by 10 points? You know, I'm, well, it's because I'm checking the score on my phone as it's, as it's on the TV. So um, as much as sometimes I hate the smartphone because it's too much, <laughs> uh, I'm one of those people that if I shut my phone off, I, I have a panic attack because I don't know who's trying to get a hold of me. So definitely, uh, for me, it's the smartphone. That's what you can't live with. It. So is that the best invention of all time? Well, that's the one I can't live without. Yeah. Best invention of all time. Uh, is, am I supposed to say the loaf of bread? <laughs> no. Um, but for some reason, I still think it's the fax machine. I don't know why. I'm so enamored with the fax machine and how you can send something over here and then it comes. I, I don't know. Well, to so, me. So then the best invention would have to be the improvement of that, which is the internet. Uh huh. The fact that you can, I mean, instantaneously, I can send you a message and it goes from my inbox to your inbox within seconds, right? Not okay. even. Is, is pretty incredible and, and how we house all this information. Um, I'm still not sure. I know Al Gore takes credit for inventing the internet. <laughs> I, I still, you know, I'll have to ask my Google home who invented the internet. She probably won't have the answer, but um, it's, the internet has to be the best invention ever. It, I couldn't use my, my smartphone would be worthless without the internet. Trust me, I've tried to use it without Wi-Fi. Um, like, what do I do with this thing? Nothing, just. Maybe you could make a phone call, but other than that, not much, right? What's the um, what's the toughest job that you ever worked, and and what did it teach you? Toughest job I have ever worked would, um, you know, I was uh, when I first graduated college, I uh, I started my job with the realtors but I also did some banquet serving on the side which got kind of awkward when you'd be at the dinner like a business dinner with somebody on a Friday night and then you'd be serving them on Saturday <laughs> night um, and, and that was like, what are you doing was, here that was very <laughs> tough about it but I think what it taught me most was humility you know you, you can never forget where you came from you're never too good to do anything um, there's there is you know tons of opportunity out there and sometimes you got to get your hands dirty um, but uh, I think it really taught humility because when you, you go from having a, a business dinner with somebody on Friday night and you're you know, putting dressing on their salad on Saturday, uh, you learn a little bit of humility in the world, and I don't think that's a bad thing. You are also the chair of the United Cambodian Community? I, I am. You can tell I'm very Cambodian. <laughs> So I was like, how did, how did that happen, and why you, and how, how did that all So it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, one of our very first clients was a mortuary, of all places, and they had a crematorium, and they're here in Long Beach. Um, have you ever seen the show Six Feet Under? I've seen it once. I don't so, really... So the, the whole show, that whole show is built on the premise of they locally own their funeral parlor, and they've got some big, like... Costco, Amazon type company trying to buy them, but uh, so we represented this large corporate version that owned one of these locals, and um, 
there was somebody trying to start their own crematorium in the middle of Belmont Shore with an old house, and it wasn't zoned that way. And a uh, planning department was asked to make um, or an ordinance that wouldn't allow for that to happen, and they kind of overstepped their bounds a little bit and created an ordinance that was going to uh, amortize all existing crematoriums in the city, essentially. And, and our clients had been, the one that they purchased had been here since like 19-something, right? Yeah, 1902 or 1906. It's been a few years, but we found out that, um, and, and the city did all these health analyses, which were like, if, if you live next to it for 200 years, for 46 hours, and they burned their, their ovens 46 hours a day, 10 days a week, you have a 0.02% chance of getting cancer, so it's a health risk. I mean, the studies were just kind of funny, but um, we found out they were the only ones that do witness cremation, which is very big in the Cambodian community. Uh, and so we tapped into um, UCC and we were talking with them about the cultural implications of this and we, we explained the, both the business and cultural implications to the city of what would happen and, and all of the existing operations were, were grandfathered in as a result of that. And I was asked if I'd like to, they were adding new board members at the time, so I was asked if I'd like to be a part of their board. And you know, I thought it was such an interesting community because uh, coming through genocide like the Khmer Rouge, you've got a lot of folks that are here, um, the first generation Cambodians, that don't participate in the public process a whole lot because to them, that's a scary process. Um, but they're a big part of our city. We have the largest Cambodian population outside of Cambodia with over 20,000 Cambodians that, in Long Beach. Is that Long Beach? Beach? Yeah, Long Beach. And, um, and so for me, it was an opportunity to work with a community that I felt should have a voice and deserved a voice um, and uh, really ha never really got their, their fair share when you talk about what goes on in the city. Cambodia town, as great as it is, doesn't get their potholes fixed quite as fast as some other parts of the city. And then as I got to know it more and more, uh, they've got this whole second generation of Cambodians with, that are these emerging leaders, but they, they really needed the tools and needed the outlet to be able to do it. Um, and, and, and as this is all happening, there is a little bit of, um, we'll, we'll call it unrest internally. And the next thing I know, I'm the chairman of the board, and I've been that now for uh, almost three years. And uh, it's it's been a really great um, opportunity for me to give back and to help, um, you know, empower a group of folks that really should have a strong voice in this city. But um, when you talk about immigrant populations, just because of how many of them got here and what they went through, are, are a little bit more shy um, than than some other groups to raise their voice and, and it's been so amazing seeing how the community has has come into its own on on something close to me which is that advocacy portion in the last few years but I got there because I, I was trying to help a, a crematorium it's very roundabout, roundabout way to get there Wow let's do a another segment that's a staple of event with Trent the gent and it's the fill in the blank segment. So I'm gonna read you a couple of words and then you're gonna fill in the blank. Okay. So don't stop blank. Thinking about tomorrow. Is that a song? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you wanna sing it? <laughs> yeah. um, 
Is that a serious answer? Is that a coy answer? Or well, is that... It's a little bit of both. But okay. I think, you know, you should never stop thinking about the next decision you're going to make tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I, I think when, you know, life is like a big game of chess. And sometimes people look at the easy thing to do today without ramification on how it impacts tomorrow. And whether you're talking about your career, your personal life, you should always say, okay, here are my decisions. Which one's going to take me the the best place, the most desirable place I want to go? And so you, you got to be thinking about there tomorrow. There you go. Number two, you can blank. Do anything. And are you living proof of that? or? I, I think... I think hard work and determination. Uh, you know, I where I grew up, most people don't ever leave there. Uh, the changes over time, obviously, it's a little bit easier for people to leave. But you know, I put myself through college. I moved out here with barely a couple nickels to rub together, and and you know, I really think that if you put your mind to it, you can do just about anything in life. Um, you know, I, I I'm very fortunate and lucky that I had the support growing up of my family that instilled that attitude into me uh you know not not to be shy to go for go for your goals but um i think you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take so you got to take a shot every once in a while true um number three conversations are blank uh interesting more and more these days interesting (laughs) (laughs) because people are Less politically correct? Sens- or? Sensitive. Yes, they, they are very sensitive. I have a bad habit of trying to play devil's advocate. So um, I will sometimes just, if somebody is 100% thinking one way, whether I agree with them or not, I will bring up the opposing viewpoint just so they understand because most things in, in life are opinions, right? Mm-hmm. There's no absolute right or wrong. Um, but we all live on different values and principles. And so... Uh, it's funny because sometimes even just trying to open someone's mind and say, have you thought about it this way? You could open up a hornet's nest. True. And you probably could lose some friends along the way. <laughs> That's the sensitivity I'm talking about. Yes. And it's like, it's a shame that we just can't have this conversation. And if it's agree to disagree at the end, but oh, I can, I can see that viewpoint, but I still believe in what I believe. And that's pretty and that's much. fine. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I know a whole bunch of misguided Dallas Cowboys fans out there, and I have not defriended any of them. <laughs> I heard that. We're, uh, okay, with that said, let's talk a little bit about, about the Super Bowl last <laughs> night. Um, obviously, and I didn't even watch the whole game. I was watching it over dinner last night. So the first Super Bowl to go into overtime, and... For me, Brady's performance last night, how can you deny that now he's the best quarterback of all times? In my eyes, and I, I'm a Bears fan. So, Not Jim McMahon? <laughs> that, that was an awesome year, 85, but uh, yeah, he can't compare to, to Brady right there. So with that said, if, if, do you agree he's number one? I think he's in the conversation. Okay, with, with whom? So I would want to, my question was going to be, who's the third best quarterback of all times? Because they always say number one and number two is easy, but just to get to that third best thing, you have to think about that one. I think it's not that easy, and I'll I'll tell you why. 
quarterback is one of the few positions in all of sports where championships also equals how great you are and it's a team sport so I think that there's a valid argument I don't think this but I think there's a valid argument that Dan Marino is the is the best quarterback that ever played but he never had the pieces around him uh, to be able to win a championship uh, but so. Brady does because that's what they're saying. He really didn't well, have a lot of peace. They had the number three defense in football, yeah. and they've had a great defense. And I think, I think, uh, without a doubt, Bill Belichick is the best coach that's ever coached in professional football. That's that's my personal mm-hmm. feeling. So that system. Um, but but there's a few folks out there that I think uh, you put into that that rush Mount Rushmore, if you will. And I think Brady is there. Uh, I think Peyton Manning is right there. Two contemporaries of one another. Uh, I think. You put Joe Montana there, but again, Joe Montana, Dan Marino. If you put Dan Marino with the 49ers, he probably would have won four Super Bowls as well. He didn't have the, the parts around him, but I think Joe Montana, nobody's going to say he wasn't good. I think Dan Marino is, is up there. I think he's, he's pretty great. Um, and I think that we've got a guy playing right now that, that could be there, Aaron Rodgers, uh, in a few years. He, he uh, for a guy that's barely six feet tall, heck of a quarterback so um i think that there's a real it's, it's very tough to make the argument that brady's not the greatest ever but i just think it's such an interesting sport and in where you could argue that barry sanders is the best running back and nobody talks about how many uh super bowls he won um you know obviously jerry rice won some but you could make arguments about randy moss or calvin johnson or other folks that never won a super bowl but as the quarterback you didn't win a Super Bowl. You you can't be in the conversation, and it, it's just to me it's funny because it's not a single sport. It's not a golfer who didn't win a championship. It's not a tennis player who didn't win. <clears throat> you could be talking about somebody that just never had the pieces around them to to be successful. I mean, John Elway, great quarterback, yeah, and yeah. and he didn't win Super Bowls until the end of his career when he wasn't nearly as good as he was in the beginning of his career. But that made him you know into that. Level. You get a guy like Terry Bradshaw, who I don't think is in that argument at all, but he was with the Steelers for the, the 70s. So, you know, he's got, he's got the second most uh, Super Bowls behind Brady and Montana. So, there you go. It's a tough my, argument, is my, what I'm saying. Yeah, I also my. hate comparing players from one time period to another because as great as Jim Brown was in the 60s, if you put him in today's NFL, probably wouldn't do a whole lot so comparing Bill Russell to LeBron James is equally as laughable to me because LeBron James is bigger faster yeah Bill Russell has 11 championships but who to play against other than, <laughs> other, than, other than Wilt Chamberlain yeah that's what I always say but I have a friend that's a real big uh, Bill Russell fan and my wife thinks exactly the way you think she's like it's a team sport it's like how how can we say he's the greatest he has this team so I hear that. A uh, couple of more, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. Always have to ask, also, right-handed or left-handed? Are you right-handed or left-handed? I'm right-handed. Okay. Are you right brain or left brain? Middle brain. <laughs> so we're in the middle there, right? Yeah, I've been getting that a lot. And so it's, it's interesting that we talk about all this right brain, left brain stuff. But everyone, and most of the people that I've been interviewing are pretty driven individuals. They all seem to think that they're somewhere in the middle. I'm very, I'm very analytical on the way I think, but I'm very creative in the way I approach things. And so um, 
it's interesting because people will, will well, you've got to be one or the other. And I'm like, I, I really don't feel like I fit because one person might tell you that they would think I'm an engineer or something. And then I sit on the arts council for the city at the same time. Now I'm definitely analytical in the way I approach it. But um, I think I think that's what I is one of the, the biggest shortcomings of today's education system is we want people to, we, we need these the renaissance education to come back where, where you are doing things uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, you're, you're tapping into your artistic and creative side, you're tapping into your, your, um, your critical thinking um, side, but we, we just don't have that approach anymore, STEM, 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 which I think that that's very important. But well, if you if, steam now, I well, guess yes, they, they did. They've added the it. A. They've added it. Yes. But um, you know that's that's why we have that's why we have folks that can make great products, and they need to. They, you know, every Steve Wozniak needs a Steve Jobs, and every Steve Jobs needs a Steve Wozniak. But I think more and more we're seeing folks that can do a little bit of both, which which is good. We need to tap into that. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I mean, we do have to look at that on the education side to say, okay, and there's nothing wrong with being good at just one thing mm -hmm. too. And if that's your thing, focus on that and run with it. So, so we know you uh, appreciate all Michael Dean's restaurants. Um, if a listener wanted to just bump into you somewhere, what, what would be the best chance for them to, to bump into you? Bump into me. <laughs> For an encounter, you know, any any place in downtown Long Beach, you'll probably see me. I'm, I'm an urbanite at heart, and so um, if I'm if I don't have to drive, I'm probably going to be walking around, and you'll you'll find me in downtown Long Beach. So um, I'm, as much as I'm a foodie, I like craft cocktails as well. So uh, the Stave, great spot to get a, a cocktail, Blind Donkey. Uh, James Republic, those are some places you, you may pop into me, especially if I've had a long day. Oh, there you go, Venters. You'll know where to find Weston if you're, if you're out there. So let's um, end with, let the listeners know how they can reach you, social media platforms, email, however you want to do it. Yeah, um, parastrategies.com, Weston at Parastrategies, that's, that's my professional side. Uh, if you want to see more of what I'm eating, uh, at Weston Labar on Instagram, it's a wide open platform. I don't, uh, I don't discriminate. You can, you can like me as much as you want. Um, glad they don't have a don't like button. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to like you. I'm going to have to get onto that because I got to, you know, all the places to eat. So, well, it's, it's funny. I, I get people, people are like, you know, that Instagram is, is for more than just selfies and, and postings of food and your dog and like what more could you put on Instagram I mean <laughs> give me a good quote at least right Weston <laughs> is that it anymore that's I mean that's that's where you'll find me being most active all right good well I want to thank you so much for taking the time today and to be on this episode of Bent with Trent the Gent and um you know Obviously, we learned a lot from you today, and um, we just want to say thank you, and that's it. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks. If you ever need me again, let me know. All right, sounds good. Thank you.
Venters, I trust that you found tremendous value in that episode. So please don't keep Vent with Trent the Gent a secret. Share it with your friends and contacts. They will thank you for it later. I want to thank you in advance for your reviews on iTunes. See you next episode.